Births are a great event. Um, Dylan and Lizzie, I'm sure Lizzie in particular is more than ready uh, for the birth of uh, this child that was due on Friday. And uh, Lord willing, if it doesn't happen this afternoon, they will go to TMC uh, tonight and uh, then they will uh, in, induce uh, uh, labor. I, I, those of you who are parents can probably remember your first child, some of your second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and, and, and so on. And they're all, they're all glories. But that first one, the reality uh, of, of uh, giving birth. And as we get older, um, we lose the capacity to be able to have children. On August 1997, Dawn Brooke in the United Kingdom became the oldest natural mother when she gave birth to a son at the age of 59. This was no birth, this, this is no, this just naturally. I thought, man, 59 years old, that'd be a shock. Um, we had a... Uh, I remember when I was in seminary, one of, um, she was a secretary, older secretary, already had a son in college, and uh, she found out she was pregnant. She goes, no, this must be a mistake. I said, no, it, it, it was a mistake. Um, they welcomed the child in. They were, they were thankful. The current world record holder for the oldest woman to give birth belongs to Maria del Carmen Busada Lara, whose sons were delivered by Caesarian, Caesarian section. How old did you think she was? 66 years old. I go, wow, you'd have teenagers in the 70s and 80s. That's a little frightening to me. Um, uh, she received IVF treatment was the way she was able to do that. Unfortunately, she died three years later of cancer, and someone else had to rein those children. But, but I looked in October, I saw that, of this past year of 2021, and, and a woman in India uh, gave birth of her first child. Her, she and her husband had been trying to have children and were unable to, and so they had IVF treatment, and at age 70, she gave birth to a child. And I just said, wow, it's a gift from God, but I don't know, I'd want to, all the obligations that, you know, I'm so thankful God gives them to young parents when they got the energy to, uh, uh, we get our grandchildren, we're happy to have them for a few days, and then as some of you have taught me, happy feet are watching the head, the, not the headlights, but the taillights in, in, as they go away. We pray for them. We, we love them. Um, but the oldest one is not in the Guinness Book of Records. It's in the Bible. Abram, Avram. He was not Abraham yet. It was Avram. In Genesis 17, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am El Shaddai, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And no longer shall your name be called Avram, but your name shall be called Avraham. In other words, it was 
exalted father. Now it's going to be the father of a great nation. You know, you could just, you could just every time, Abraham, how many children you got? None. And you're, what? what what's your name mean? I mean, there must have been a, lo- a few uh, skeptics there. And as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, kings of people shall come for her. Now remember what Sarah did when she was in the tent and the Lord showed up? What'd she do? Ha ha, yeah, she laughed. But sometimes we miss this text, and when Abraham, he fell on his face and laughed. (laughs) I go, ooh. Um, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear a child? And he goes, must be Ishmael. He said, no. The Lord said, your wife is going to conceive, and about this time next year, she's going to have a son. And what did they name him? The son of promise. What'd they name him? Isaac. What's his name mean? Yitzhak? Laughter. So he laughed in unbelief. Now they're laughing in joy that God would have given them a son. We read in Romans chapter 4. I mean, that, that's pretty thin air spiritually to, to respond the way Abraham and, and Sarah eventually did, especially in Genesis 22. It's called the Akkad of the Binding. Um, there when God told him to go sacrifice his son, the son of promise, seriously. But Romans 4.18 spells out the essence of true biblical faith. And here it is. Abraham, contrary to hope, you, you don't have any hope, seriously, of bearing a child at 100, in hope believed, hope in God's promises, so that he became the father of many nations. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and here's the biblical meaning of faith, being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform, that what God had promised. You know, and and that's what saving faith is. You believe that God has promised the forgiveness of sin to everyone who believes upon him. That's the essence of it right there. And if you don't believe upon him, then you will perish eternally. So, when we come to the text this morning, there's another birth that is far more supernatural than even the one of Sarah and Abraham. And this is the one that will really reveal your approach to Scripture. I, w- I was teaching when I was doing graduate uh, uh, study in a Christian school to pay for um, uh, tuition, and uh, it wasn't... We, 
the church, the school wasn't large, so they were meeting in a church. It was an evangelical church. And, and one of the debates there, I didn't attend there, but one of the debates there was, do you have to believe in the virgin birth to be a Christian? And I kind of uh, grit my teeth on that one. And I approach it this way. Well, um, do you have to believe in the resurrection to be a Christian? And the answer to that is absolutely clear. Yes, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ literally died and was buried and was raised from the dead and paid the penalty for sin, you can't possibly be a Christian. No one this side of the resurrection can be a Christian without believing that truth. That's clear. It's part of the gospel. Now, you say, well, can you be a Christian without believing in the virgin birth? And I ask, well, what have you gained by denying the virgin birth when it's so clear in the Bible? Why would you want to deny that truth? Well, it's just not real, you know, it, it, it just my worldview doesn't fit it into it. And I say, how did your worldview fit in the resurrection from the dead? So I, I just answer this question and, and look at it this way. What's your approach to Scripture? That's really the key issue. Do I hold the book over my head? And there are mysteries here. And sometimes God hasn't fully explained the mystery, but he has given me everything that I need to know about that mystery to trust him. So we're going to come to one of the great mysteries in the Bible. It's called the virgin birth. Um, it's not called the immaculate conception. That's a different uh, um, doctrine that doesn't find its roots in the Bible. There's another one about Mary's uh, perpetual virginity. It's not in the Bible um, either. But in terms of a woman who is a virgin, never had any sexual experience, no seed from the man to give birth, this, this just goes against what we know about biology, but it should go with what we know about the God of heaven above and what he has revealed in the scripture. And we're going to see this was prophesied in the Old Testament. We're going to come to that one in Isaiah 7.14. Now, I may not get to totally work through Isaiah 7.14. There are a number uh, of uh, uh, fulfillment passages in uh, Matthew uh, and we start off with one that is one of the more difficult. There's been more ink uh, um, <laughs> written about Isaiah 7:14, and hopefully we'll get to that. But I'm going to begin this morning not in Matthew, but in Luke. So if you will turn with me to Luke. And the reason why I'm going to do that, I'm not going to spend as much time in the Lucan passage as we will be in Matthew, is because I want, I want to stress something, and that is sometimes people hold the gospel accounts in tension with one another that don't find harmony together. And I want to say that I don't want to read Matthew through Luke's eyes, and I don't want to read 
uh, Luke through Matthew's eyes, each one has their own theme, but they complement one another. Neither one uh, has everything that the other one has to say, but, but this, is, this is both from the living God and their hand in glove. So we're going to begin in, in Matthew, and I got ahead of myself. Um, some don't call this the birth of Jesus Christ. They say it's the conception. I'm not going to argue with that because the birth doesn't really come down um, in Matthew until the very end. It's just, it just matter of fact it happened. They don't tell us a lot about the birth. So where are we at thus far? We are uh, chapters 1 and 2, I take as the introduction, and we looked at that title and that word there, I take it rather than translating in 1-1 one, one, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, I translate it as the origin of Jesus Christ because that same word occurs in 118 with birth. And I think Matthew intends us to understand both of those. And then it continues down through all of chapter 2, goes through geographic places, how God, why did, why did his parents go from one place to another place to another place? Well, God's superintending the whole thing, but it's also in fulfillment of Scripture. This is. He has the right credentials, and he fulfills Scripture. So that's, that's where we're at, and now we're in complementary birth accounts with different emphasis. So I'm going to start in Luke 1, and uh, work our way down through here. Now in the sixth month, and the sixth month here is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Remember what Luke does, he starts out his gospel with parallel accounts of the birth of John the baptizer along with Jesus, and he's comparing those two accounts. So in the sixth month, previously, of Elizabeth, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, Luke's account is really all about Mary. Uh, Joseph um, is not uh, highlighted here. When we look at Matthew's account, we're going to see that Joseph is highlighted. But what's going to happen in both of them, the main point is this is a virgin birth. And it should rattle our cages and say, here's something supernatural, never happened before in the history of the world, will never happen again, but it is in fulfillment of Scripture. So Gabriel, the messenger from God, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Um, those of you who have taken a couple of tours uh, to Israel, those of you who are... We, we went to uh, Nazareth, at least the current town, on the first trip, and we didn't really care to go to the second one because um, that's not really the tell, the place where it's a little, it's a little backwater town out there, and uh, there's, they're still doing some archaeological work on that particular uh, tell. Nazareth, 
Galilee. He didn't come down to Jerusalem and one of the key people there. He didn't come to Judea, but he comes to a little town up in Nazareth. And you know what, you know what folks actually thought down in general? If you lived in Jerusalem and you lived in Judea, man, those, those, those people up in Galilee, they don't know what's going on. They're, they're you know, it's a little, little spiritual snobbery down there in uh, Jerusalem. Now you're going to find out, but also, remember, uh, Gal- uh, Nazareth didn't have really that good of a reputation over in John chapter 1 when we saw that uh, Philip found Nathaniel and, and, and said to him, you know, we found him, the Messiah of whom Moses and the law of prophets and, Na- and Nathaniel. You know where Nathaniel lived? He lived in Cana. You know where Cana is? It's up there in Galilee. They're they're not too far apart. And so now we don't have the spiritual snobbery down in Jerusalem. We just have folks up in Galilee saying bad things. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's he's one of the towns up there. And so it didn't have that good of a reputation. And and it's not like Sherman and Denison. You know, if if you... um, the football teams, et, et, et cetera, the rivalry, um, those towns, no. This is a different kind of Nazareth, seriously. And here, what does God choose? He sends Gabriel to this town that you wouldn't expect, and he sends it to a person that you wouldn't expect, to a virgin betrothed, to a man whose name was Joseph. That's it for Joseph in this account. Now, the rest of the stress is upon Mary. But Joseph of the house of David. So here we have the Davidic line. So we have, we have this word here, betrothed. Some translations will use the word engaged. I don't think... I, I think it's misleading to translate it as engaged because if when a couple gets engaged, um, at least here in the West, you can call it off. Maybe somebody will have a broken heart, but you don't have any legal obligations or bindings. Now, in betrothal, in the Old Testament, uh, it, it actually, betrothal had two parts to it. Number one is a period where you actually enter into a legal contract with a young woman. And it often would start as early as 12 or 13. Now, I know some of you guys out there that may have a daughter that young age, and you go, are you serious? Well, they just got married a lot uh, younger. The the young man would usually be a couple years uh, older than that, but would enter into contract with her parents. And she doesn't come live with you. She stays there perhaps a year, two years. But even during this period, it's considered that she is your wife during the betrothal period. And then later on at the marriage ceremony, then she actually comes to live with you and you engage in all the responsibilities and uh, et cetera, uh, the, the uh, obligations that you have sexually to one another. But before, beter- during this betrothal period, ah, uh-uh, no, no sex. And to do so 
was considered adultery. You say, where do you get that from? I'm glad you asked. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 23, actually 22, and verse 23. Now, now some will translate this Hebrew word here, uh, engaged. I like the ESV uh, here on this one, betrothed. The, the word betrothal, and actually we get an English word that didn't come about till uh, 1560s to try and convey the thought here. But notice, 22-23, if there is a betrothed virgin, one who has entered into this agreement, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she didn't cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man because he violated his neighbor's wife. Do you get, do you see, look at this text. A betrothed, a betrothed virgin, 23, was considered the wife, the wife, even though they haven't come to live in the same house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. In other words, if she didn't cry out, it's taken that, that she voluntarily engaged in that relationship. But watch verse 25. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. She's given the benefit of the doubt. There was nobody out there to whom she she could cry out to, to hear, you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense, punishable by Death, for this case is like that of a man attacking, murdering his neighbor, etc. Now, jump to 24.1, and, and this is one that's kind of debated, but I do think it has bearing upon the text that we're going to look at this morning. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, becomes another woman's man. He gives her, then he can't go back and re remarry her. But this is where the Pharisees in the New Testament came to Jesus and said, you know, um, can a man basically divorce a woman for any reason? And if you, if you read first century Jewish literature at that time, you burn my toast, you do whatever, and I can hand you a, a gift, <laughs> a certificate of divorce. And so they present that to Jesus. You remember what his answer was? They said, Moses commanded. He said, oh, no, Moses didn't command it. He permitted it because of the hardness of your heart. This was regulating a practice, and it really was protection for the woman. It's not an endorsement of, uh, of divorce. You have to read Malachi 2.16. And so if he has found some indecency, now that word, uh, it, it deals with the word nakedness, and I take it that that's uh, Numbers 5. We're not going to turn there, but there are two. Uh, it's going to help us when we come down to look at uh, the account here. But going back to the text, I'll come to that when we get to Matthew. There's a virgin betrayed. She is legally 
his wife during this betrothal period, but they are not living together. The marriage ceremony uh, has not been taken place. And she's a virgin, a virgin. I'll, I'll talk about when we get to Matthew, um, uh, the Hebrew word uh, back in Isaiah is Alma. Um, in, in Greek, it's Parthenos. I think it, it's clear beyond doubt um, what is talked about here, although there's debates about these words. It, it's talking about Parthenos. He, he, Matthew will quote the Septuagint verbatim except for one, one small change, and it, it's beyond uh, a shadow of a doubt that he is talking here about a woman who has never had any sexual experience, and she's betrothed to a man, Joseph, and the virgin's name was Mary. So Gabriel shows up and says to her, Greetings, O favored one. Now this is the word related to grace. O one who has grace been bestowed upon you. The Lord is with you. And she was greatly troubled. That word here for troubled is, is a Greek verb, terasso. It means she was stirred up in her emotions. This is, she was emotionally upset. What, what in the world? If an angel shows up to you and says, oh, favored one, I mean, first of all, to have an angel show up to you is uh, pretty striking. And then give her, and, it's, and uh, she's trying to understand, discern, what kind of greeting is this? And so no, long, no wonder that the angel says to her, don't be afraid. She's all stirred up, wondering why an angel would show up to her and says, Mary, you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive, literally, you're going to have in your womb and you're going to give birth to a son and you shall call his name Jesus. We looked at that last week. The Joshua of the Old Testament shortened, and from the verb yasha, to save, you're, you're going to give uh, birth to a son. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Going right back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and other text. Now notice Mary's response. You can really compare this. Remember Zechariah when uh, um, the angels showed up and they were in their old age and he and his, his wife Elizabeth weren't able to have any children and uh, um, he questioned in unbelief because the angel says to him, because you didn't believe the message from God, you're going to be... Those of you who heard that famous song in Sunday school, you're not going to be able to talk until the birth of the child. And when the child is born, you're to name, name him John. But this is different. She doesn't say, that can't possibly happen. I don't believe that. What she says, Will, wow, I'm going to do this? How, how, how can I do this when I'm, I'm a virgin? She's asking how this can take place. She knows biology. And 
Notice the, the angel encourages her and gives her an answer. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will call, be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, some say, well, they try and figure this one out. Look, this is a mystery. It's a mystery. If God were to explain in any more than general terms, would we really understand how God has worked? And so he has been content to say, here's how it took place, believe it, and don't try and unscrew the inscrutable. This is God. It's supernatural. It's unique. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age. She's also conceived, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. Believe this, nothing will be impossible with God. And now notice Mary's response. Behold, that, that little interjection. Take a look at this. Pay attention. I am, and the word here really isn't servant. It's the word for slave. I'm a female slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Wow. So, was that really um, a blessing for her? Well, it was, but is she now put in a dilemma, a difficulty? Um, so, what's she, what, what, what's she uh, going to say to Joseph? We are so familiar, most of us, with these Advent texts. We rehearse them and rejoice at Christmas. But stop and think about this. Hail, favored one. Did this privilege have a social price tag attached to it? How will she respond when she begins to have an enlarged belly with a child in the womb? What will she say to Joseph? And some of you say, well, just, just tell him the truth. Right. And what man is going to believe that line coming from Mary's lips? How will he swallow that? Oh, an angel just showed up and told me I'm going to bear a child, and you're going to expect Joseph to say, okay. Uh, Mary's pregnancy implicates her with adultery. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Not only did Joseph, but to the Jewish family and friends. Well, what's her family going to say? And in the first century, according to the passage we looked at Deuteronomy, she should be stoned to death. Now, that rarely was practiced in the first century, but what kind of consolation is that to Mary? She's almost certainly going to be wrongly despised and perhaps deserted by Joseph. One remark, so far as she could tell, she was being asked to risk everything that gives stability in her life. And what does she do? She submits to the revealed will of God. She calls herself the slave girl of the Lord. I'm telling you, this is some rare spiritual air that she is breathing. So when someone tells me today, I believe in Jesus, but I don't, and the resurrection, but I don't believe in the virgin birth, I go, you need to go back and get a little better response 
and see how Mary responded. You don't even have the stigma that's going to be attached to her by, by many people. You're just afraid that the world's going to say, what, are you an idiot for believing that? And I just say, the, idiot, the world already thinks you're an idiot if you believe in the resurrection of, of Jesus from the dead. So believe God's word and what it says. Now, we, we have looked at this is crystal clear here. There's no question about what the text says. She's a virgin. And it's, it's emphasized in the context. She says, I haven't known a man. How is this going to happen? And the angel explains it to her. And she says, okay, be it to me according to your word. Now I'll jump over to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to look at the account here that complements this account in Luke. And we start with the crucial circumstances regarding the pregnancy in 118. Now remember, what, the narr- what Matthew is doing here is the narrator. He's going to give us some information for us that, that Joseph doesn't know. Some say, well, uh, Mary went back and told him, and he just didn't believe it. I go, no, there is no suggestion in the text that Mary said, uh, Joseph, um, angels showed up. Guess what's happening? That's why my, I, I'm getting bigger. No, he, he realized it by observation. Otherwise, the announcement from the angel, that's the indication in the first text that that, that he actually knew about this. So let's just look at it. Now the birth, that's the same word back there in one one origin of Jesus Christ, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, complimentary account in Luke, before they came together, again, that's emphasizing sexual purity, She was found to be with child, and the origin is from the Holy Spirit, same as in Luke. And her husband, again, betrothal period. Joseph is her husband, even though the marriage ceremony has not been taken place. Now, from the Holy Spirit. That's the information We, Matthew, wants his readers to know as they read this account and they have it read to them. Joseph doesn't know that information yet in verse 19 that we know. And so now we read about his response. And her husband, Joseph, he's described by two verbal adjectives. He's a just man and he doesn't want to... Uh, have a public disgrace of her. So he is a, a, a just man. That ju- word just, and I take it, um, although he was, there's a contrast here, although he was a just man, he didn't want to disgrace her. Now, when you read just here, righteous, this isn't Pauline thought on forensic righteousness, the imputation This is practical righteousness. Uh, He was a just man. And justice for him is not the world's justice 
justice is always the standard of God. So he knew the Old Testament. And he was a just man. He tried to align his life in accordance with that. And, but although he was a just man, he didn't want her to put her to shame. I take it that's the Deuteronomy 24 one. So, um, instead of a public trial that would end in disgrace and death, she ought to be stoned to death if she had committed, uh, she was pregnant during this time period. He wants a private divorce by dry, drawing up a divorce statement and giving it to Mary in the presence of two or three witnesses. That just seemed the best way to Joseph to solve the problem. And if he did marry her, that would be an admission possibly of his own guilt. Um, the full rigor of the law would have led to her stoning. Um, and the law also allowed for a private divorce between two witnesses. And you could look at the uh, Mishnah, although the Mishnah is not scripture, the way they understood that, and Joseph would have understood that. So a quiet divorce would leave his righteousness intact, his conformity to the law, and able to be a compassionate man. Now, now think about the impact upon Joseph. He certainly loved Mary. And he, he's, as far as he knows, she's a chaste, pure young woman. And all of a sudden he finds out that she is pregnant. This had to be devastating to uh, a righteous man. And so, and, and he loved this, this young gal. And so he doesn't want to throw her under the bus in terms of give her the full rigor of the law, but he's saying, what are my other options? And so he says, okay, I'm going to hand her a certificate of divorce. And the hardness of the heart, he would probably say, was her hardness of the heart for disobeying God. Then, verse 20, as he considered these things, look at this. Behold, pay attention. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, not as Mary. In Mary, it seems to be a person. The, the Gabriel actually showed up. Here, it appeared to him in a dream. Now, you'll find dreams right through one and two. And some of you will say, well, I had a dream last night. And God spoke to me. And I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. And I'm going to say, okay, tell me what your dream was. And if it doesn't agree with Scripture, I'm going to tell you where that dream came from. Maybe too much pizza or whatever, but it didn't come from, from God if it's contrary to Scripture. So, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, going right back to the Davidic line, and just like the angel told, Gabriel told Mary, don't be afraid, don't fear. Joseph has a lot of fear here about taking Mary as his wife. She was unfaithful. Am I still going to be a, be a just man? No, don't fear. And he tells him the same thing. For that which is conceived in her is from 
the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save their people from what? From their sin. Now just think about if you were Joseph. My son's going to do what? <laughs> Save God's people from their sin? Wow. That, I mean, when Mary was told that, remember what Mary did in the May? She treasured all these things in her heart. And I suspect Joseph, that was a little mind-boggling. He's going to save his people from their sin, not from their unhappiness, not from their financial poverty, not from their feelings of depression or loneliness, not from low social standing, not from a lack of education, but from sin, personal sin. You know what sin is? We taught it in VBS. It has three letters. What's the middle letter? So, yeah, we were teaching the kids, and I go, so what's, the, what's in the middle letter? And you know what? They looked at me and they said, you are. <laughs> I said, yes, I am, but pronounce it right, S-I-N. you got to say, I am in the middle of it as well. Um, save people from their sin. Um, where's my sheet? I, I teach Latin on, well, here it is. I teach Latin on Thursday morning. Dylan teaches... Uh, our, our youth, our high school, college, whoever comes, um, if you want to fit yourself in that category, systematic theology. So he left some of his notes, or um, there were a couple of them there, and I picked it up and checking up on Dylan and see what he's teaching. He was teaching on hamartiology. If you don't know, hamartias in Greek is a word for sin. And I read through his notes, and I go, wow, this is pretty good stuff. So Dylan, keep it up. We don't want any people leaving Grace Bible Church that got any reason to say no one ever had a discussion with me about theology or about the Bible, and as long as I went to church and I'm a good person, I'm going to heaven. No, we don't want that. So here's his definition of sin. comes right out of Westminster Confession of Faith. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God. You say, well, as long as I do the right things. No, it's more than that. It's a, it's a failure to conform to the moral law of God, not only in our actions, but in our attitudes, in our nature. What's, what's the 10th commandment in the Ten Commandments? What is coveting? Is that an outside action? It's a condition, attitude of the heart. I want something that someone else has, and I want it serve me. So anyway, here's the one I wanted to, uh, to read from you. I have Thomas Watson on sin here. Let me make a statement. Um, he calls it, uh, sin is heinous. It's an execrable thing. It's a malorum calloways, the complication of all evil. It's the spirits of mischief distilled. Um, so here's off a of Dylan sheet. Finally, we should note that this definition emphasizes the seriousness of sin. 
We realize from experience that sin is harmful to our lives, that it brings pain and destructive consequences to us and to others affected by it. But when we define sin as failure to conform to the moral law of God, we emphasize sin is something more than harmful to us and destructive to us. It's always wrong in the deepest sense of the world. It's a universe created by God. Sin ought not to be approved. Sin is directly opposite to all that is good in God's character. And just as God necessarily and eternally delights in himself and in all that he is, and so God necessarily and eternally hates sin. And if you're a believer, you should love righteousness and hate sin. And if you don't, you ought to ask why. Are you a professor but not a possessor of true righteousness? Sin is, in essence, the contradiction of the excellence of his moral character because sin contradicts God's holiness. He must hate it. And if we understand how God hates sin, how gracious is he that he would send from heaven above his own son to a virgin, supernatural, who's going to save his people from their sin. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, it's 10... I'm... I'm no, I'm not going to skip it, but I'm, I'm just going to... Um, there are a number of views. There's a ton of stuff that's been written on this particular one. Some of the um, uh, fulfillment formulas aren't as difficult. This one from Isaiah 2.14. I just mentioned three. These are godly, believing, conservative scholars, so there's no question about their integrity. They all agree that this is a virgin they're, they're going to agree with everything that I said thus far, but they're going to disagree over the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scripture, how Matthew uses them. So I'm just going to put all my cards on the table right out front. I'm going to submit to you that the New Testament writers don't just hey, that looks like a good text I can use, and it has nothing to do with the Old Testament context. They don't fabricate stuff. They don't invent history. These, this isn't Jewish midrash. This is, this is, if there's not something in the Old Testament context, then they don't use it. Now, how it's in that Old Testament context is a question of controversial debate. So there's basically... Three uh, positions on this. One is, if you've never heard this term, sensus plenior. It means a more uh, full meaning. It, it's often called double fulfillment. In other words, what's in Isaiah? Oh, by the way, while I'm yakking on, turn back to Isaiah 7 so we can at least take a couple uh, look at it in its, in its context. Sensus plenior would say, well... Um, yeah, we really can't get that from the Old Testament context, but since Matthew is an inspired writer, only he can get the full 
understanding. And so we know that in this double fulfillment that Isaiah's son or Ahaz's son, whoever they're going to identify, um, that happened to them. But the virgin birth goes beyond that. But you could never get that out of the Old Testament context. I, 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 um, godly men hold that to position. I'm not attacking their integrity. I just find that is, is weak for a number of reasons. The, the other one is called typology or a typological prophetic meaning, and uh, a number of good commentators uh, hold that position. Typology says um, there's real historicity and there has to be correspondence, namely something in the Old Testament, a pattern, a person, furniture in the tabernacle. It, it, it's used by the New Testament writer to give the full significance in Jesus Christ. This is not double fulfillment. This, this is a pattern of things. And the other third one is direct predictive prophecy in the example of Psalm 110. Now, what, what I put on there, and I, I uh, hold this with a degree of trepidation because I, um, um, but I, I've been influenced by uh, Alec Motir uh, and his commentary on Isaiah, and he talks about the purpose of signs in Hebrew Scripture. One of those is the sign has an immediate confirmation of what has taken place. But some of them are a later confirmation. And remember when Moses, back in uh, Exodus chapter 4, says, when you come to Sinai, this is a sign. Well, it doesn't happen right away. It's called a later confirmation. So he uses the terms a present persuader and a future confirmation. Now, not everybody is... is uh, convinced of that. It, it makes sense to me. And so when you go to Isaiah 7:14, actually what's happening, there's a coalition of uh, Ephraim, Israel in the north, and Syria, Aram, and they're going to come against uh, King Ahaz. Ahaz, good or, good or evil king? Wicked. Burned his sons in the fire. One abomination after another. So he's a wicked king, and Isaiah was sent to him, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In other words, God will move heaven and earth for you to give you a sign to confirm to you that they're not going to uh, endure. And if you, end of verse 9, if you're not firm in faith, you won't be firm at all. In other words, don't, he's tempted to go to Assyria. Give them a few shekels, more than a few shekels, and to get Assyria on his side. And Isaiah said, ah, no, no, you better trust your God. Well, he doesn't do it. He does go to Assyria. So this whole passage has to be read, come down to 9-6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders, name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In other words, those things with Isaiah 7:14 can't be read in context by itself. You need to look through that whole section and come down to 9:14. So I take it it's predictive, uh, direct fulfillment in Jesus Christ, but it has a historical root and a meaning to uh, Ahaz. So. 
If that doesn't make sense to you, you can always ask me later and go, Dr. Klein, what were you talking about? You're educated beyond your ability to comprehend. I don't understand anything you were talking about. So you, you can chat with me later upon it. The point, the point in Matthew is clear, regardless of whichever those approaches you take. Here was a young woman who had never known a man. And God chose her, humble beginnings, in a little backwater town to produce the Messiah. What humble beginnings for our Savior. And the stigma that was thrown upon Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus of Bethlehem, the royal city. And, and Mary says, be it, be it to me according to the word you have spoken. And then you come down to Matthew. And Matthew, his mind had to be absolutely devastated that this young woman he was going to marry and found out she was pregnant. And then to get a message from the angel of God, here's, and he doesn't say like Zechariah, nah, that couldn't happen. He responds in faith and obedience. Look at the last statement in Matthew chapter 1. He was obedient. He woke from his sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. So it doesn't give us all the stuff about the son. It just mentions it's happened, and he called his name Jesus. He was obedient. Joseph and Mary are examples to us of what it means to believe God's word without hesitation. Um, all right, stop. Conclusion does mean something. Uh, uh, I, I don't know if you saw it on the, on the news. Uh, a friend sent this to me, and I, I read it. I heard her... Uh, explanation, but a Finnish member of parliament, a woman, is on trial along with a Lutheran bishop in Finland for expressing traditional views on marriage and homosexuality. It can, if convicted, both could face fines and time in prison. And during their closing arguments, here's what the prosecution prosecution argued that the use of the word sin could be harmful. The prosecution's case is that it's acceptable to quote and reference the Bible, but it can't be interpreted in a way that is upsetting to anyone. And I'd say, okay, just read it. You shall call his name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. That doesn't need any, any interpretation. It's about as plain as my hand in front of my face. And if you don't recognize sin, you can't be saved. We had a problem with our uh, HVAC system last couple of weeks, and we replaced it the preceding year, 
And uh, so we called them up. They sent a young technician out, and this, one of the sensors wasn't working right. He replaced it, and he said, you got any more problems? Call me. Well, a few days later, the sensor still wasn't working. We called him. They sent him back down. He replaced a second part. Very kind young man. Very even called me sir. I haven't been called sir by a young man in a long time. And he said, sir, if you have any other problems, here's what we're going to have to do next. But he says, I hope this will take care of the problem. He says, do you have any other questions for me? I said, yes, I do. I have a personal question for you. He goes, okay. I said, can you tell me what the word gospel is? Do you know what the gospel is? He goes, what? I said, the gospel. He looked at me and he goes, is it the Bible? I said, no, it's not the Bible. It's a concept found in the Bible. He goes, oh. I said, let me change gears. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever sinned? Man has some type of understanding. He goes, oh, yes, sir, I have sinned. I said, well, let me tell you the bad news first. The bad news is the wages of sin is death. And if you do not repent and believe upon your sin, you will perish eternally. And the gospel is good news. It's good news, but only to those who recognize their sin and turn from it and believe upon Jesus. That's the good news. So if our HVAC system comes out, next time I'm prepared for him with a Bible and a fuller explanation uh, to give to him. But that that's... That's the point of Matthew in this text. Jesus saves his people from their sins. Have you been saved from your sin? Have you turned from trusting yourself onto Jesus? And if you have, why would you ever throw out the virgin birth? Why would you do that? It's revealed in Scripture. Believe the Word of God. Joseph and Mary stand as a great witness to us. It was harder for them to believe it. They had some social issues, and where did this pregnancy come from? And it's as plain in Scripture as could possibly be plain. So my final admonition to you is there are mysteries in Scripture. Don't try and unscrew the inscrutable. Just worship. God gives us those things to worship Him and to thank Him that He would send a Savior for guilty sinners such as us.